Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome back to another installment of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I'm Mike Leon. I'm Nick Ben. And we've got a good episode for you guys tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about policing in America. Um, a very serious topic. Um, we're going to be having a, a special guest joining us, uh, Corporal Benson, who is a police officer in the Maryland, D.C. area, uh, who's also an African-American, to kind of discuss not only that dichotomy, but also... Um, what he feels about his own police department and some of the things that they've instituted to to really work with their community. Um, at the top, I wanted to really discuss, you know, the goal and intention of this podcast. Nick and I have made this uh, bones about this many times. Um, that this isn't really political in nature. There's no left right argument with this and such a topic like this a lot of times gets politicized right you're either on the side of police or you're not on the side of police and that's not what we feel is is the goal of this show right we we want to talk about different topics and have you continue the discussions you know in your homes with your families um and with a topic like this that's so sensitive because of you know the media coverage that has happened recently with the different police events you know in not only in minnesota in, in Philadelphia, just as recently, the Jacob Blake situation happened in Wisconsin. There's a lot of attention that's been drawn to this um, from the sports world, from the news and media world. And so we really wanted to have a conversation tonight to kind of go over what the state of policing in America is, you know, what is happening current day, what are some of the issues at hand, and have an, ex, an experienced expert, you know, seven, eight years in the field as a police officer, and, and what can be done to fix an improvement? That's Nick and I's goal always uh, with these topics that we do on the podcast. Mike, I think to, to what you're talking about, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on education. You know, one thing I brought up was 
the concept of thinking of education not as a system, which is the way we tend to think of it, but think of the idea of it in principle, education. Policing is a similar idea in the sense that, you know, as a, as a country, depending on the state you live in, the county you live in, the township, what have you, the relationship with the police can vary. You know, and what we've seen recently with the, the death of George Floyd, a few years back, we think of Eric Garner, we can think of Sandra Bland. I mean, there's a lot of cases, and you'll notice I'm mentioning black people, that the police department has a, has, it gets to your point about difficulty, right? Um, communities feel a different way. The black community has a very understandable and very clear perception of what does policing mean and what does it mean to them and how is that different to the way policing is viewed by white people, by other ethnicities. That's a critical conversation that the fact that based on the race you are, policing may mean something different to you is, is, a, is worthy of a conversation to have, regardless of where you are politically. Because we're at a point now where there is open distrust of police. We're now openly questioning the concepts of funding police and what does that mean? And what is the role of the police department? What is the role of policing in, in any community in America? It's a conversation no, that needs to be had. No, it's true. It's it's a great point. And and even as you were, you know, elocuting that, it's 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 easy to see it uh, as both of us are trying to talk about it because it is a serious topic. Um, and we want on this show to devote that type of seriousness, right, with a factual based argument, right? And this isn't to get people to hate police, like police. That's not the goal of this, right? Um, there's clearly defined issues by even police standards that are happening in police departments across America, right? There are standards with policing the communities that we live in. Um, and that's why we wanted to have somebody on the show tonight to really bring light to that, right? Have a serious conversation. Why this person became a police officer, you know? Um, what are some of the practices that his department does um, in his community? You know, because, and, and you, you'll find out in a little bit, his community is majority African-American and Latino. so. Here's a, a guy who is African-American who has that experience working with people and he's policing that community where he lives in. So we wanted to get that uh, out there on the show tonight and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. All right, so joining us now is Corporal William Benson, who's a police officer in the Maryland, D.C. area, as we mentioned before, and we thank him for hopping on with us. Uh, Corporal Benson, I'm Mike Leon, Nick Savary here with me. Thanks for giving us a couple minutes. Oh, no, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. So, Corporal Benson, um, you know, we're, this is a serious topic. Uh, policing in America has become the focal point um, throughout, you know, media coverage and all the different issues that have happened um, over the course of, let's just say, for right now, the last six months. But we all know it's been happening for years, right? And police, police, uh, policing in America has been scrutinized. I wanted to get your take on why you became a police officer. Tell us how you, you got to become a police officer in the community that you live in. It, it wasn't the old cliche of, as I was growing up, I always wanted to become a police officer. That, that wasn't it. It was more so, um, uh, I had a half brother who actually was already a police officer in this area. And I kind of was just observing his career from afar. And um, at the time I kind of was in between jobs slash career, things of that nature. And I just like, I kind of like the accolades and the achievements he was pretty much getting throughout the, his law enforcement career. So I thought it was like, this is something I could give it a shot and I'm going to try. I so happened to fall in this career choice and I actually do love it. I felt it. I 
fell in love with the actual career choice as time went on. When you think about what, when you think of the reality of, of what the role had became, like from what you saw from the outside through, I think you mentioned your, your brother-in-law uh, and then, you know, um, and then putting on the uniform, what was the, what was the shift in reality for you? What did it look like? Well, um, definitely because uh, when I entered the academy, it was a couple years after the whole Trayvon Martin situation. Okay. Um, police brutality wasn't the topic of, of concern in America at that point. But as I started to go through the academy and then Freddie Gray happened, when Freddie Gray happened, I was already up here. So I kind of was in the academy first, second year in law enforcement. I kind of was second guessing the, my choice at first. I actually had a moment where I decided, uh, was I going to continue to do this? What came to light for me was, I think I'm better served at this position as far as having the most positive interaction with the community and try to change that mindset on the individual basis based on my interaction. So that coming to light moment pretty much happened around my second or third year in active law enforcement duty. You know, uh, Corporal Benson, I wanted to harp on something you mentioned there because um, you talked about a couple of different cases that were in the national spotlight uh, with respect to policing in America and, and, the, and the choices that you had to make as you were going through the academy. Um, you're an African-American male. Um, the, the community that you police in is predominantly African-American, you know, over 65% are African-American. What does that make you feel like when knowing that you're policing members of your own community, of your own uh, uh, race? Um, for the most part, it gives me, because we're blessed with the authority of discretion as law enforcement officers, okay? And um, by me coming in contact, I'm pretty much the first person you see at your worst moment, if that makes sense. So for me to actually uh, pretty much encounter these people at the worst possible moment and try to make it as positive as I possibly can, that's, uh, that, that's something that I kind of get enjoyment, fulfillment out of when, I, when I'm a police officer in a community of people that look like myself. And not to mention, um, where I grew up, well-diverse uh, metropolitan city. So my interactions with different cultures, I've been exposed to that since I was, God knows how old, <laughs> you see what I mean? Up until I became a police officer. So there's, um, there's, there's nothing really that came up surprising me when policing people who look like me or people within my own community. It's just, I have to make that interaction as positive as I possibly can. As it you mentioned just having that opportunity to have interacted with people of just different races and ethnicities, you know, both from growing up and, and professionally now uh, in law enforcement. On your, but within the, within the department, what do you see, what do you notice happening when your you know, colleagues of yours who might nece not necessarily have that same familiar, familiarity or have had that same uh, type of upbringing in diverse circumstances that you're speaking to, what is their experience in terms of working in the same communities that you serve? Uh, what I've experienced with people, I've, people of the white counterparts are people not well-versed within my community or know how to deal with people within my community. It's a lot of hesitation. It's a lot of uncertainty. It's a lot of them not knowing what to do, how to handle it. 
things of that nature. So they revert back to their basic academy training, which tends to make us a little bit robotic. So if um, usually when I see that occurring or happening, I try to step in and add just a little bit. You, law enforcement nowadays has to realize they become a little bit more personable, okay? It's not, it's not the black and white criminal digest that you study on a day-to-day basis. You can't handle every circumstances like that because with that black and white, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of gray going on, okay? So within that, so when I see somebody struggling with communication with somebody of my skin tone or somebody of a different culture that I could understand just based on my exposure at an early age, I try to step in make it a more of a personable slash positive interaction. And if I can, if time allows me to kind of um, show them or tell them how they could have handled said situation differently. Officer Benson, I, you know, I wanted to get into, and Nick kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, some of the hiring practices of just your department, uh, for instance, what would you say is the makeup of the, is it majority white officers? Is it, you know, kind of mixed, but also the hiring practices, right? The recruiting uh, that your department does to get officers, you know, to not only go to the academy, but eventually graduate from the academy. Take us through a little bit of that, of, of what um, your police department specifically does. Well, I've gotten fortunate and I'm in a very healthy mix of white versus black or minority officers within my agency. I've just gotten lucky that way. Um, as far as hiring practices, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna go from a national scale and then kind of bring it back down to my local level. Um, on a national scale overall, from what I've seen, um, recruitment could, could be a little less, uh, just a tad bit less restrictive, okay? Just a prime example, um, I believe for a while, within law enforcement recruitment, tattoos were frowned upon. You fast forward to 2020, it's more sociably accepted amongst just the general community that tattoos are not quote unquote, I don't know. I mean, if you just go back to biker gangs and things like that, there's no longer those type of connotations with tattoos. Hmm. Um, just people like, uh, they ask you, have you ever got in trouble in high school? For example, if you, uh, if you had like a little misdemeanor in high school or things of that nature, we all, we all young, we've been there, we've been naive, certain candidates kind of get dinged harder for that. And then next thing you know, they're disqualified. But can you really judge me based on what I did at 18, 17 years old? You see what I'm saying? I'm 23, 24, 25 now. So those quality candidates start to kind of get disqualified. So if when you bring it back down to my local level, um, I know this is an archaic policy within, for example, uh, shaving waivers. Like, uh, I think for, it was explained to me that beards weren't professional. And I'm like, come on, you're, you're just disqualifying quality candidates that you're, you're telling them to pretty much in this current day and age to occupy a position amongst the community and you're trying to trust with a gun and badge. And you're telling me what to look, how to, you see what I'm saying? Things of that nature. That's why, that's what I mean by becoming a little less restrictive in the recruitment tactics. You mentioned in terms of the academy training and the experience you had. 
-hmm. When we think of the concept of community policing, I think the three of us and most people would probably interpret that as the ability for a member of law enforcement to, to actually connect with the community, to have a relationship with the community. In your experience in the academy, what role did that concept of community, place, community policing play in the education of people who are joining law enforcement? So when I went through the academy, just to give you a quick time frame, it was 2014. So, it, so it's, not, it's not this day and age, I've been out of it a little bit, but at that point in time, to reuse a word, unfortunately, it was a little bit, it was a little robotic and a little militant as far as the approach. Um, and you, have, you also have to keep in mind that a lot of people within law enforcement are either prior military, active military, reservists, things of that nature. And then you have people in the higher rankings who have that background I just said. So the structure within itself is a little militant, a little rigid, and not, and not personable. That was in 2014. I don't know if things have changed right now. I haven't been in an academy setting, obviously, in a while. So... It could have changed without me knowing at this point, but um, community policing, as far as within the academy, I know of one instructor who actually tried to uh, put an emphasis on that just due to the current climate and tried to take, like they, they do time blocks. They have allocated time blocks as far as verbal, it's called verbal judo, de-escalation of certain situations. You see what I'm saying? That wasn't around in 2014 when I was going mm -hmm. through it. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, Certain things like that, certain little aspects like that shows me, whereas uh, you're not hearing, you're listening. We, we touched upon this, that, you know, you're a black police officer and you struggled when you heard about the Freddie Gray situation when you were in the academy and questioning whether or not you wanted to do this. I wanted to get your thoughts on, as you've seen other policing situations in America happen, you know, George Floyd, Jacob Blake. I don't want to go into each individual situation, but mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. see these happen and then you see the protests and, and the Black Lives Matter movement. What is your take on being a member of the Black community, but also being a police officer, right? And, and tasked with serving the community, protecting the community. What is that like for you? Is it, is it a struggle for you? And then what are your thoughts? Can you understand people's pains and frustration being a member of that community? Does it help you? And do you try to impart that, you know, to your other police officers that maybe don't understand? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a struggle because um, once you step out that cruiser, so to speak, with the uniform, you kind of get painted with a broad brush as far as uh, um. I feel like it's presumed that you're kind of in agreement with happened or whatever, things of that nature, which is the biggest misconception of when it comes to law enforcement officers. Um, so it, it, it is a bit of a struggle when you see things like that, like the George Floyd's and the Freddie Gray's and things of that nature. Unjustly things where you know at, where as an officer, you're like, okay, didn't have to do that. We start to critique it a little bit and you know, you see unavoidable situations or actions that really does have an effect on the officer that actually takes the time to reassess a situation, give it an opportunity to de-escalate on its own before drastic measures are to be taken. So um, just being a member of the African-American community and seeing that it does make the job a little tougher um, at, at that 
point, but yeah, what was the second part? I think you had a second part, did you? No, I mean, I mean, you you touched on a lot of it because it's it's like that. It must be an internal struggle for you because you mentioned the times in the police academy, you know, and then the Freddie Gray situation happening. Um, and again, not to relitigate everything that happened, but you know, you struggled. Do I really want to do this? So, you know, that mentality obviously has shifted for you. Uh, you said you get gratification from from the work that you do because you know that you can de-escalate something probably better than, you know, some other officers that are on the force. So I just, I wanted to get more of a sense of what were your thoughts on these protests that are happening that, and, and, and do you feel a sense of, Hey, I understand what these people are going through. Like, how does that affect you when you're policing now your community? Yeah. As far as, yeah, obviously. Yeah. As far as the protests, uh, I completely agree with the message of the actual protest itself, especially when it came to the George Floyd situation and things of that, because that was just unjustly, just to say the least. And um, I think, I feel like uh, as a law enforcement community, I, me personally, before I even became an officer, I got pulled over a bunch of times in the area I grew up. But to also, to also say I never had a negative interaction with law enforcement, the multiple times I got pulled over, which I was fortunate, but at the same time, I can't discount experiences of different people. Right. If you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. If, if somebody has, unfortunately, uh, they had so many negative interactions. I cannot discount their experience slash interaction based off of mine. That's that, that's, I feel like that's just a, that's just something that law enforcement has to be well aware of when they have these interactions and, amongst the community itself. We often hear about the role of police unions, you know, helping to, to dictate the tone uh, and the mentality of the department as it relates to these incidents in terms of the, the perception of trying to be a unified front to provide, to show support for the police department. For, as, as an officer, where's your stance on the role of unions? And is that perception, I'm speaking obviously as a civilian in this case, clearly, um, but is that the same read you have of it as, as a member of law enforcement? Yeah, police unions are necessary in the sense of if, um, if you're, unfortunately, if you're involved in an incident that pretty could garner national media attention or just an incident that's bad within itself, police unions typically come in and allow the officer to pretty much to pretty much gather himself because these are split second decisions that we're being told to make. You see what I mean? So um, you go from mental illnesses, you go from whatever the call for service was. So we're, we're asked to make some really split second decisions. So police unions come into play, whereas they offer us a chance to gather ourselves and the legal ramifications that may come, unfortunately, or in some, some, well, more times than not, um, as far as the situations where are completely justified, where, but the unjust situations, I feel like some agencies have law, enforce, law enforcement officer bill of rights. Some states are trying to go away from it. Some states are actually pro, they're trying to stay with it. But the unions play a specific role as far as the defense or on the behalf of an actual officer, which in some cases helps it really helps with those incidents where we're called to do a split second, a split second uh, determination or decision. You know, a lot has been made in this political cycle about 
defunding the police, right? It's been a, a message that you've heard from both sides of the political aisle, right? One side saying that it means we want to take away all cops. The other side saying that's not what it means. Uh, I don't want to get into the political aspect of it, but for you, when you hear the phrasing defunding the police, right? And you know, it's really about maybe reallocating funds, you know, so you guys don't have to go on calls for mental health issues. What, what do you think about uh, defunding the police overall, or at least reallocating resources, maybe uh, allocating more resources to training? Um, give me, give me uh, your thoughts on, on not only the slogan, but what it means to you. Well, when I hear that slogan, I go back to your second part. That's what I think. I think I don't, I don't take it literally as defund an actual law enforcement agency. I take it more as re reallocating our money or our funding to do more, more research and development with less lethal. Okay. Right. So uh, that's how I, that's how I see it. I don't see it as a, um, as a negative connotation with that term itself. I just view it as just as more. So you're not going to pay less. You're not going to pay less for a higher quality of service. You're not going to walk into a roof, Chris, and ask them to pretty much lower their prices. But you want the same quality of service, or right. if not a higher quality of service. You see what you see where I'm getting at? Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's all about relocating your funds as far as training, research and development, recruitment, things of that nature. That's how I take defund the police. I feel like you probably get this question often, but I'll bring it up here. Um, just from just from your standpoint, when you think about what needs what needs to change in law enforcement, and you mentioned earlier the the presence of sort of a, of a military of a military approach in terms of training and the development of the police department of the police of police officers, but in your view, if you had to boil it down to two or three things that if they were to be explored or implemented in law enforcement that would provide that would bring us a little closer to the concept of community policing what are some of those things that come to mind for you uh humanization just humanize the person who are you just when you get a call for service so to speak you have to kind of like i said earlier you're meeting people at their worst and you have to take that in consideration so emotions are ran high no, nobody calls the police to say what's up Okay, everybody, if you're calling me, you need me. Okay, so we need to learn how to human that can kind of go both ways as well. But just to stick on the law enforcement aspect, you just need to learn how to humanize people. Everything is not as black and white robotic. It's not, you just have to see if you could try to be as empathetic as you possibly can, when it comes to dealing with people of our community or people within a specific culture, race, gender, creed, whatever, you just have to, you just have to just put more into that human element of policing. And I feel like that will make somewhat of a change in the right direction, not a complete change, but that will start to at least build a little bit more trust in the law enforcement community or police in general, because let's be honest, there's a huge as of right now, police, policing could be seen more as an inconvenience than a help. You see, because you could turn on Netflix and watch a whole bunch of documentaries about police corruption, mm -hmm. things of that nature. So the general concept, of, and then you couple that with the most recent events in law enforcement. So we're, we're behind the eight ball back. So 
just to, just to reintroduce that humanization factor of people we serve could help at least guide us or put us in a position where we could kind of go in that right direction. You know, Officer Benson, and again, we appreciate you hopping on. Uh, this has been uh, really great. Um, you, you mentioned uh, right there the microscope that you guys are under, right? Um, obviously, television police have played a role forever. There's new law enforcement shows that are popping yeah. up every day, right? And you mentioned Netflix having tons of documentaries, right? When, when something comes into the national spotlight, like a, like a Freddie Gray, like, a, you know, a George Floyd, um, when those happen, take us through what happened in your police department specifically. Like once that happens, you know, is there a meeting where it's like, look, guys, we're really under the gun here. Make sure your body cameras are on. Make sure, you know, this is being emphasized when you go out on a call. Like, what are some of the sp specific things you can give us that your department has kind of instituted once something comes into the national spotlight? Probably get uh, some email blasts or email memos just reminding us of defensive tactics, the use of force continuum. Um, pretty much a uh, Harvard the community policing. They always reiterate community policing when these major events uh, take place. Um, and explain, and, and if you can explain to us like the use of force part of it, like what, what does that mean for our audience? Like break it down for, for those of us who don't aren't familiar with what law enforcement uh, and what that means. It varies from county to county, state to state. And every county state has a different uh, use of force continuum. So what that specifically means is, uh, let's say I get called for a call of service and somebody, it's, uh, for example, just for the sake of the domestic call, and some, the emotions are high, things of that nature. Um, tension is very tense. People are going at each other. First and foremost, you want to use your de-escalation skills, allow the, allow the situation to de-escalate itself, okay, before you actually intervene, Okay. Once that's being said, the use of force continuum takes in consideration postures, aggression slash frustration, which is a huge thing. You have to you have to decipher whether this is aggression or whether this is just pure frustration, because that makes a huge difference in the totality of a circumstance. As you go through that mental checklist, you we're we're obviously we're all armed with everything to de-escalate situations unfortunately some situations do have to get physical in nature so we have obviously you've seen the tasers the uh pepper sprays the, the baton that that's usually at the bottom of the use of force continuum like i said usually it varies in different counties and different states but that's usually at the bottom and it's sort of you could think of a pyramid you go from that and you just escalate up to the Pretty much when you get to the top of the pyramid, that's ultimate deadly force, obviously, deploying your service weapon. Because uh, whatever you observing is the preservation of life of yourself or, or of someone else. So that's how, in a gist, that's how the use of force continuum kind of goes. It goes from less to severe, which usually the end result for severe is deploying your service weapon. You just mentioned weaponry. One thing that comes to mind for me is the role of federal support in law enforcement uh, in the form of just additional um, supplies that have been provided in the past from the federal government. And I think of really the evolution of SWAT, actually, since the, since the 60s and 70s. In your view, what, what have you seen 
in terms of federal support? And what is your take on the kind of, honestly, for lack of a better phrase, artillery that, that local law enforcement has access to? Especially with the artillery, so to speak, uh, we're in a, there's different eras, different criminal trends. We're in a criminal trend of mass shootings, unfortunately. That's a huge criminal trend. So with that being, with that more so being on the rise or pretty much plateauing, we have to, uh, unfortunately, we have to arm ourselves for said situations if we do have to act against an active shooter, whether it be in a school, in a mall, courthouse, things of that nature. That's where the um, artillery aspect comes into play for events uh, to that magnitude. As far as the federal funding for police off, for policing, I see that more so in the more definitely more so in the equipment and the actual training to get certification to get certified within the state that you are a police officer in. A lot of it goes into the accreditation as far as um the agency itself. So federal funding I see more so into that. Obviously a little bit for the investigative purposes, a little more access to investigate murders, homicides, things of that nature. So in equipment overall, I see a lot of that federal funding being spent. If you had uh, a final message for our listeners, our audience out there uh, about policing in general, um, what you want uh, everyday American citizens to know about the police departments that are serving the communities, what, what would that message be? Uh, that message, uh, it goes back to what I said, humanization. And remember, I said it could go both ways. From the citizen's aspect, just be mindful. An officer is literally there to help you. Nine, I, I'm willing to go as high as 98% of officers are not what you see on the CNNs, the Fox News, the things of that nature. So if you could just humanize the officer himself, realize that this person is a person behind a badge, has a family, could be a father, could be a son, could be a things of that nature. I know it's, I know it's a lot to ask for because if you're calling me, you need me. So I know sometimes it could get kind of lost in the sauce, so to speak. But just to reintroduce the humanization factor on both sides of law enforcement and specifically citizens itself. We really appreciate you coming on today, Officer Benson. Um, we, we thank you for obviously your service in the area that you're patrolling in the Maryland, D.C. area. Uh, stay safe and thanks for hopping on and giving us a couple minutes. All right. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thank both of you guys for giving me the time. All right. That was Corporal William Benson, again, a police officer in the Maryland, D.C. area. Uh, and we are really excited that he was able to join us and give us a couple minutes. Um, Nick, your overall thoughts on, on, on the interview and, and the topic in general? Well, for one, I think the topic in general, and I think uh, Corporal Benson hits on it. And I, and I really appreciate the, what came up a lot in that interview was talking about humanization as it relates to being a member of law enforcement, being a civilian, you know, in the way we interact with law enforcement. I appreciate him bringing that crucial point up because I think that's something that's lost in this discussion is we're talking about another member of the community, one in this case who happens to have a badge and a gun, but who is another member of the community. Um, and I think that piece, I think, excited me a lot. Just talking about revisiting the concept of community policing, and I really was appreciative of just talking about the presence of 
the military as relates to the training of officers and how that may be actually taking away from a sense of humanization that we've seen traditionally in the concept of local law enforcement. I think you're right. And, you know, he touched on a couple of different things. Uh, you know, obviously he's an African-American male, right? He, he understands the plight uh, of citizens that are in the community. And, and I'm sure he hears it on calls, but also he's going through it in his own family life, right? So, you know, that, that counterbalance, he's able to take that with him um, when he goes out there and he has, you know, his badge and he's in his patrol car and he's able to, you know, kind of diffuse situations like, as he mentioned, a little bit better than some other officers. And and it's and it's good to hear that there are officers out there that are um, using that type of influence to be able to say, look, th- th- obviously I'm a member of this community, you know, I, l- learn from me in this situation or here's something that at least helped me along the way maybe it'll help you along the way i think um you know it's it's such a sensitive topic right now and everyone we started at the beginning of this episode talking about this everyone thinks that it's it's left right right it's you got to be on this side blue lives matter or you're on black lives matter and it's really not that here's somebody that really sits in the middle of that dichotomy and it's and and he's every day risking his life right to go out there as a member of the african-american community and a police officer right it's it's super tough i can't imagine you know going through that but i'm I'm glad that he was able to give us that perspective um and also you know i know that there's a lot of other police forces out there that do you know good work within the communities and i know that there are a lot of officers you know or maybe some officers that maybe don't understand the struggle that that blacks and minorities latinos are, are, are going through every day um it's a conversation that needs to continue to happen but it's good to hear that there are people that are in law enforcement like, like officer benson um that that are out there patrolling their communities but that'll do it for us uh for tonight's installment of the can we please talk podcast uh, as always i'm mike leon and i'm nick severi we'll catch you guys next week uh, see you then Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.